Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have uh, a study like this before us every Sunday. That we have in the Word, Father, the convicting message of, of how it is we are to live out our faith presented through the man James, but Father, from your Holy Spirit. Father, there are probably a thousand messages that we would prefer to hear when we sit in church on Sundays than the message that tells us we have so far to go before we may please you in a a life of holiness. We would rather hear, Father, about how much good we do, and we'd rather hear, Father, about the, the ways in which we triumph over things in our life and the riches and blessings we should expect because we are your children and so on. Many of those things may be true, Father, but, but those aren't the things that will grow us. Those aren't the words, Father, that will change us and bring us face to face with our sin and cause us to evaluate what it is we do with our lives. And therefore, Father, those things aren't good for us. We thank you, Lord, that the book of James is available and that you are taking us through it in, in a patient way. But we also ask, Father, that what we hear today would be put to use in ways beyond Sunday morning. That in the way we walk and in the things we say and the way we represent you in our lives outside this building, I pray that the words of James would come back to our mind time and time again. So here we are, Father, ready to learn what you will be speaking to us for the week to come and prepare our hearts for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Trials, as James teaches, are reasons for joy. And they're reasons for joy because they are tests from the Lord, given to us so that we would have an opportunity to show how much we have matured in our walk, how much we've grown as a result of the work of the Spirit in us to make us like Christ. And we pass those tests by appealing to godly wisdom in knowing how to respond and in listening to His direction when we ask. These tests then become open book tests when we do that because we are given what we need to know in order to face them properly in a godly way if we are stable, if we remain in that wisdom, if we hold to what God is offering us in his word or in prayer. Now, there's another kind of trial that he teaches about, one that is a temptation. And unlike the earlier ones, these come from the natural result of our sinful nature. And there is a process by which they lead us into sin. We need to understand that process. But the solution to those tests are the same as the earlier ones. We seek the Lord's strength and his wisdom to learn how we confront those temptations and overcome them. And when we rest in that, we are giving opportunity for an eternal reward, for God to to bless us for the way we pass these tests. That's James's first chapter, at least to this point. James stands as a unique book in some respects, But it's not as if James teaches things that no one else teaches or that he is presenting something that you can't find elsewhere in the Bible. I find one small passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 9, to be a perfect capsulation of chapter 1 of James. Verse 9 of Colossians 1. Speaking to this church, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you, and look what he says, and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects. And with what result? 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, here again, in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who, as a result of what he is doing in us, look at the result, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. There's all the elements of James's first chapter. And if we had more time, I'd take you through the passage and show them to you. I'm hoping just from the last three weeks of teaching, you're beginning to see that pattern yourself. That there is a God work in us, built on the knowledge of his will and on his spiritual wisdom, which leads us to a walk worthy of the Lord, based on our willingness to be steadfast and patience in what God has given us, ultimately to attain a share of an inheritance. That is the theme of chapter 1 of James. He said already in this chapter repeatedly that the solution to the facing of trials and temptations is to seek godly wisdom. And I've said at points along the way that godly wisdom is more than one thing, potentially. It can come out of prayer. It can come out of seeking the wisdom of others in the church. But ultimately, all those sources, even prayer itself, is dependent on, is conditioned on God's word. So if we are to be confident that what we hear is truth, we go back to his word to verify what we believe God is telling us. So ultimately, godly wisdom must be rooted in God's word. And that's James's focus as he finishes the letter. How God's word gives us the ability to face trials and temptations the right way. Verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He starts by saying, this you know, brethren. What they know is what he's been teaching. But more than that, they understand that godly wisdom is the key to what they're supposed to do in the face of trials. They understand trials are tests. They understand God's at work and that there is a sovereign purpose in what's happening to them. They understand this. So why does he say it again? Because they weren't living according to what they knew. That's a principle of Scripture that we can't overlook. I can teach you things, or someone can teach me something, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to use it, or we're going to live according to that truth. Sometimes, in fact, quite often, though we know something to be true, we don't act in accordance with that truth. And so James is dealing now with the second half of the problem, the fact that they might understand the things he's teaching, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily using what he's been teaching. And if they aren't living according to that knowledge, then when they face a trial, they're going to react in ways they shouldn't react. They're going to react in anger. Or in the face of some difficulty, they're going to react in frustration. Or they're going to act in doubt as they experience trials. Why? Because they're not using what they know. James says here, everyone should be quick to hear. When James's letter was written, the time and the day and the age that this letter was written, people didn't have Bibles. People didn't have a book that they carried around with them everywhere they went so that, that at any moment they could read God's Word. First of all, books weren't in existence the way we see them today. They were scrolls. And furthermore, scrolls were expensive. People had to handwrite them. The materials, the parchment itself, was very expensive. So the average person never had a copy of God's Word in their home. Where they would experience God's Word was in the 
temple or more likely in a synagogue or in a home where there was a scroll available and it was read aloud. So when we today think of studying God's word, we think of reading it. But in James's day, when someone studied God's word, they heard it. They sat for someone to teach it or read it. So when James says, be quick to hear, you and I should understand that a little differently. You could replace for our sake the words quick to hear by saying quick to study, quick to read, quick to consult God's word. The hearing here is in the context of God's word. So he says they ought to be quick to hear. They ought to be attentive to God's word, listening to it. So that's the problem he's interested in addressing here. That if we aren't using what we know, we fail in those tests. So we get sick, or our spouse is in the middle of a, of a, of a difficult illness, or our child has a life-threatening illness, or we lose our job, which many in here have experienced from time to time, or maybe a spouse has an affair, very difficult thing in any marriage, our businesses fail, or a million other things you could name. One of those things come along, and with them, they will bring worry, they will bring anger, they will bring stress. And if we remember that God is at work in those moments testing our spiritual maturity, and our response is being graded, then we will have a different perspective. We'll know that this is the moment I'm supposed to seek godly wisdom. This is the moment in which a combination of study of God's word and prayer and reaching out to others in the faith is going to determine whether I'm successful at this test or not. But then as we know that, we start to tell ourselves things. We start to talk to ourselves. We stop listening or reading and we start talking. And when James says, be slow to speak, he's not simply talking about what we communicate to other people. He's talking about what we communicate first to ourselves. Secondly, how then that turns into a conversation with someone else. We will say things to ourselves in the moment, in moments like the ones I just listed, we will start to say things to ourselves like, it's unfair, or where is God, or why is he doing this to me, or we may start to think or say unkind things about some of the people who may be involved in the situation that is testing us or trying us. Or we may strike out at someone else in frustration with our words. Or we may just tell ourselves that there's nothing in the Bible that could speak to the circumstances I'm in right now. My situation is not the kind of situation that you'll find in the Bible. And therefore, there's nothing here for me. And I'm on my own. And I start talking to myself about what I should do. Ultimately, you're going to get to a point of self-pity or just depression or, or anxiety or, or anger. And as we get talking and as we get frustrated and angry, we start looking for ways to escape our trials. We call them solutions. God looks at them and says, that's not a solution, that's escaping my test. That's the equivalent of a student who gets the pop quiz in their high school class deciding that the best way they can confront that stress, that difficulty, is to stand up and walk out of the classroom. That solved it, didn't it? Only until you get your grade. Those are the ways our flesh responds to trials, but that's not the godly way to respond. James says the anger of men cannot produce the righteousness of God. Anger is, is, I think, emblematic. I'm not saying it's not important. I think his concern here is over an angry response, an emotionally charged response. 
But for many of us, anger is not the first way we would likely respond. We have a different emotional focus in those moments. I don't think that takes us off the hook. I think you could substitute those other emotions for the word anger and you end up with the same sentence. The self-pity of men does not produce the righteousness of God. The anxiety of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Put your word in there and you end up with the same sentence. So I think that there's a principle that's broader than just the emotion that he chose to use, though I think anger is a first concern for him. And that's why he mentions it. Remember the reason for the trial. The reason for anything that comes our way that causes us discomfort is so that God, in the course of bringing that trial, can grow us through it. If you run from it, you don't grow. If you react to it in a fleshly way, you don't grow. If we look at these things as something we're supposed to deal with on our own, we don't grow. Instead, he says, be quick to hear God's word, or as we would say, be quick to consult it or to read it and slow to speak. Now, in the examples I've been using here, these various ways in which we can stress out or be bothered by trials, the speaking here, I think, always refers to our tendency to rationalize our circumstances to ourselves and to others. And I think it's interesting how often that rationalization process moves from our head to our mouth. It's as if we need some other folks to hear our thoughts, even if it's just a spouse or a friend, so that when they hear them and they say, you're right, we can feel better in what we're thinking. And unfortunately, not enough people are willing to say in that moment, I hear what you're saying, Steve, but I don't think that's a godly thing. I don't think you're really hearing from God. Or I think you've taken what God's given you in the form of this trial and you're reacting to it in a bad, bad way. You're reacting to it in a way that is not producing God's righteousness in you. It's producing a kind of escape response, perhaps. I think we talk so much, we stop listening. They're almost mutually exclusive when you think about it. There's plenty of books on communication that make the point that as long as we're busy talking, even if it's just to ourselves, we're not really listening. Winston Churchill said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Remember Psalms 46.10? You may remember it by having heard it before. 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's a principle there of let God. Let go and let God. You've probably got that on your refrigerator. So then James gives us the secret here to receiving God's wisdom in a trial. In verse 21, receive God's word in humility. The word for humility is preotes in the Greek. It means meekness. Receive it in a meekness or in a humility. In other words, humble ourselves, eliminating the pride from our response to the trial and recognize that it is a test we have to pass with God's help. The way I try to tell myself, or the way I try to counsel myself, if I get in a talk mode, which I am often in talk mode, that's no surprise to anybody in here, but in talk mode, as I think through what my circumstances mean and how I'm supposed to respond, and as I begin to travel down that self-pity path, even for a moment, thinking to myself, how unfair, how much better should I have it than I'm getting it from God, I start to remind myself what Scripture would tell me if I were to open the book, and that is, I don't deserve anything. And God doesn't owe me anything. Every breath I take is grace. Past the moment of of, of now, anything after today is grace. I mean, there's no reason I should be alive according to God's economy in Scripture. I have no basis for that life except Him living in me. We have no good in us save Christ in us. So when He brings something upon me, I have no basis for saying to God it's unfair 
what's unfair? You're alive, aren't you, Steve? You have my spirit in you, don't you? You've been saved by grace, not of your own, but of my will. What is it you think I owe you now? All right, well, that takes me off the self-pity train for a moment and gives me something to think about, hopefully. Trials are good for us. They're good for us. George Stulak said this, and it takes a moment to sink in, but man, this guy had it right in one sentence. He said, often we pray for safety instead of purity because we don't see impurity as dangerous. If we understood the danger of impurity, we'd recognize that the best way to pray for safety is to pray for trials that will knock the impurity out of us. When we pray for health and wealth and ease, we do so because those things sound good to our flesh. But when the Father sends us trials instead, we should respond understanding they are for our good. Because everything we need to face trials is available from God as well. Peter says it this way, Second Peter 1-2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, there's that word again, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So everything we need pertaining to life and godliness is available through the knowledge of Christ. And that knowledge is principally made available through God's Word. So here's the, here's the mystery of it. As people come to me, as you might imagine, and this is true probably for anyone who's, who walks as a Christian outwardly, people come to you with questions. They want advice. They want help. They want counsel. And that's particularly true for someone in my role. And when they come to me and they say, Steve, what do I do in this situation? And I ask them if they consulted God's Word and they're thinking, well, <laughs> yeah, but this situation seems very specific. You know, I'm at work and I have this one person I'm dealing with or, you know, one issue in my family. And that's not in the Bible. I mean, when they say that, what they're saying to me is, this is an instruction manual or a dictionary or an encyclopedia as far as they're concerned. And so when the topic's not found in here, well then, what good is it? What they fail to recognize is this is Christ living in them today. This is, this is Christ's presence today in the world as we await his physical return. And I can go to the Bible, I can open up any page of Scripture, and God can talk to me from that page about anything he wants to in my life if I am willing to understand its power to do so, if I go to the Word with that expectation. So I ask someone, are you studying the Bible? The answer is no. They're not consistently in the God's Word. They're not consistently seeking it. It's not a, a lifestyle. It's an event. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. It's an event, not a lifestyle. It's a consultation under duress, not a source of life in every day. And when that's the way we treat it, well, then why would we be surprised that in the moments we reach a trial or a test, we're absent the wisdom we need to deal with it? How come we're surprised the, the answer doesn't just jump off the page at us? Because he's not looking for us to use this as a reference work. He wants a relationship with us through his word. When we have a spouse, if we went to the spouse for conversation only when we needed their help, what kind of relationship would that be? Some of you guys have tried it, I know, and it doesn't work. <laughs> It's self-evidently not going to be a good working relationship. You have to be engaged in a relationship every day of the week so that when the moments come along where you really need help, there is something on which to base the help. There's some communication relationship already there. God's Word is the principal tool God has established for our relationship with Him now. His Spirit being the one who teaches us by the Word, the sword of the Spirit. If we use it in a cavalier, casual way, we are the one 
who is not being quick to hear. We are the one who is being too quick, in some cases, to speak or be angry or react and not let God's word be that wisdom in us to face those trials. Did you notice both Peter and James refer to the word as something that's already granted? James said the one that is implanted in you, the word implanted in you. Peter said here, the knowledge of God has been granted to us already. What he's referring to there is the fact that the teacher, the one who's going to make all this stuff clear to you, is already inside you in the form of the Spirit. You have Christ's Spirit in you. You have the Word, as as you might think of it in those terms, already in you. He's just waiting for the chance to talk to you a little bit. Quick to hear. Quick to hear. So when we're suffering from all these illnesses or weaknesses, we hear God's Word telling us things like, well, yeah, your body's going to fail anyway. There's a new body prepared for you. And because we hear that in God's Word, we stop worrying about that sickness, perhaps. We stop focusing on the fact that our body is failing, and we start looking forward to our new body. And our focus and our mindset in that trial changes. Or when our business fails, and we have been in God's Word on a regular basis, we are going to have thoughts come back to mind that, re- that tell us our eternal business is seeking after the righteousness of God and he will add all the other things to us as he sees fit. And suddenly our worry about the business just doesn't seem as important as it used to. I'm not saying it's a panacea of Pollyannish thoughts. What I'm saying, though, is your perspective on your life circumstances will change when you have eyes for eternity brought to you through God's word. That's what he means when he says, this is the word that can save our souls. The Greek here, saving our souls, doesn't mean salvation. It speaks to a kind of preserving of our life toward a good end, toward a a successful outcome. It's with respect to our sanctification, our ability to leave this life with a good testimony. That's what he means by saving our souls. And James now deals with that in the next section. Look at verse 22. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. There's a tendency in the church today among Bible-following churches, the classic Bible church kind of stereotype. And it is that they are a group of people who spend a lot of time listening to the Word, studying the Word, paying lip service to the Word. They put the the word Bible on their sign even outside, but then when it comes to actually doing, they're not doing quite as much. James says, first, prove yourselves doers of the Word. The word prove in Greek means something that has been done or has already been accomplished, meaning demonstrate the truth of something through your action. That's the basic point. But in the context of trials, we haven't left that context, by the way. This is still a chapter about trials. In the context of trials, it refers to living according to God's word in the midst of a trial. So he sets up a choice of two paths for the one who has come to a trial moment, recognized that it's a trial. I've got to deal with it in a godly way. I've got to seek God's wisdom. They open God's word. They're in God's word. They're doing all of the steps that James has outlined. Now, at that point, James says... You can hear it and then tell yourself, I'm okay. He must be talking about somebody else. Don't tell me I need to change anything. I'm fine. You know, we sit in the pew and we tell ourselves, oh, I love this message from the pastor. I hope Miss So-and-so is listening. 
The point was meant for them, but not for us, in other words. That's what James means when he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but also doers, rather than delude yourselves, delude ourselves. The deluding here, it's in reference to that thought, that I have come to the word, I've heard it, but there's nothing I need to do different. Rather than saying, wow, I don't think I do that very well, which is the honest way to approach a reading of Scripture. It's a pharisaical way of thinking. Anytime we come to the Word of God and we assume we are already living according to it without any need to readdress our priorities or our decisions or our actions. It's an unteachable heart attitude that looks at Scripture. Anytime the Scriptures talk about how we are to change our walk to, to be more Christ-like, it's, it's an unteachable heart that comes away from that saying, in a prideful way, that's not me. James uses this beautiful analogy of, a, of that kind of a person. He uses the mirror as the picture, as the analogy of God's Word. So looking in the mirror is the equivalent of reading God's Word, staring into the truth of Scripture. And that mirror reflects us in an honest way, doesn't it? If it's a good mirror. It reflects back the honest truth of who we are physically as we stare into that mirror. And God's Word has the same effect, only it doesn't speak to our physical qualities, but to our spiritual qualities. And it speaks back with an authority and a truth, the Spirit using those words to convict us, so that we would see ourselves in an honest way, in the way God sees us. So it's the mirror in the way God sees us. I don't know about you, but I, I don't like staring at myself in a mirror. Honestly, I don't. I'm not just being sort of humble here for effect. Because every time I look in a mirror, the longer I look the more imperfections I find, the more things I don't like, the more things I think about, gosh, that's what people have to see every time they look at me. And you, you almost get to the point where a glance is enough <laughs> because a long stare just doesn't make you feel better as you leave the room. It makes you stay longer, right? Oh, I've got to fix that. That's terrible. I got, did, what, honey, why didn't you tell me about that? There were three college graduates who recently went to visit their pastor and they had the same question. They were all seeking advice on their careers. And the pastor tells them that there's actually a mirror in his office that he's discovered God uses to speak clearly to them on what the future holds for them. And if they look into that mirror, and he's, he tells them, if you tell the truth, as you're looking at yourself in the mirror, tell God through that mirror how you desire to serve him. Tell the truth, and God will respond instantly in the moment answering your prayer. And, of course, the three college graduates are tremendously excited at the prospect of getting answers to their prayer. You know, nice, quick answer is always something we look for. But then the pastor gives them a warning. He says, now, if you look into that mirror and you lie to God about what it is you believe is true for you, then he will instantly make you disappear and you will wind up in hell. It's like a negative rapture. So the first graduate walks in, a UT grad in this case, and he walks in. You know where I'm going, but it doesn't matter. And he looks at the mirror and he says, I think I will become a successful businessman and I will use my wealth to fund missionaries around the world. Instantly, in the mirror, he sees a vision of himself in a corner office at the top of a skyscraper in New York City running that successful business. And he leaves thrilled. The Texas Tech grad is the next one in and he walks in, looks in the mirror and says to himself, I think I will become a successful Christian author and I will reach many people with the gospel as I write my books. And instantly in that mirror, he sees a vision of all his books at the top of a bestseller list. So he's excited, of course. But then finally, the A&M grad 
the Aggie walks in. He looks at the mirror and he says, I think instantly he disappears. All right, well, forgive me for getting off the point, but uh, it was loosely related to the lesson. If, if we look into the mirror that God provides in his word, you're going to have to do what James says. Come with an honest heart, with that humble meekness, that teachable heart. But you've got to look upon what you're seeing as a reflection of yourself and take out of your mind those thoughts of who else it applies to. Just... Just start that practice. As you study God's word, when you start feeling yourself saying, oh, so-and-so needs to read this, stop. Because even if you're right, that's just not the point. That's not the reason you're there. It's not helping you to remember all the other people who need to be more Christ-like. Instead, ask yourself, what about me? The Spirit will speak to you about where you are falling short or where you need to make changes or where your life can be better uh, directed in accordance with his word, and we ought to stay on that thought, on where we can do things better based on what God is saying in his word to us. And if you learn something from that self-inspection, then James says, put it into action. If the person who looks in the mirror says to himself, my hair is a wreck, and responds to that knowledge by leaving the mirror so they can stop thinking about it, that's deluding yourself. That's what James is talking about. That's the deluding, the fooling of yourself that happens when you don't actually think seriously about what God has revealed to you in his word concerning your own life. Get out of that relationship you have because it's not a godly relationship. Leave that business because they're asking you to do things contrary to what a godly person should do. Things that change your life. Things that require that you, you start over somewhere in, in some context of your life. Putting something aside that you've always loved. See, that's the problem. The problem is we'll sometimes do the small things because they are somewhat easy, or at least we'll attend to them, we'll try to solve them. But then that makes us feel like we're trying, so then we can ignore the bigger ones. He says, do different, look upon the perfect law of liberty. Stare at it like you're staring at a mirror. The word for look here is perikupto. This is what it literally means in the Greek. It means to stoop over and stare at something. Get close to it. Like you had to see something close that's on the ground. That's the sense of the word. It would be the worst kind of mirror experience as far as I'm concerned. It's get up close and stare at every pore, every imperfection, every hair that's out of place. Really, really look. Which you know if you do that, you're not going to be pleased with what you find. Much easier to stand 20 feet back and say, I look okay. This is a look intently. Look with that kind of concentrated focus. Study God's word with so serious a purpose that you are searching for something in it every day that tells you to do something differently. Remember, James's audience here were the Jews who had come in faith to do the law. Now, as Christians, they've been told, no, you're no, no longer under the law. So now they're trying to understand, what is it we do with this faith we've been given? And he says, what you do is stoop down, look intently into God's Word, stare into it, understand what it is God's asking you to do in it, and then go do it. And the one who does those things will be blessed in what they do. Now, I have heard these verses misused so often in one particular way. They are thrown at the feet of people in the church who are not busy enough. It's the wrong way to use the verse. Do you notice he didn't have anything to say here about our activity? In that sense, it's about living out what we learn in God's word in our own life. 
it's to the point of we are not called human doings. We are called human beings because God's purpose in how he wants to raise us up through his word is to change who we are, not necessarily what we do. What we do will follow from who we are. But if you're not who you are in Christ, if you're not who you're supposed to be, then nothing you're going to do is going to matter to God anyway. The doing is the natural outgrowth of the being, and the being is about Christ-like life made possible by what we learn in God's Word. Some of the most godly people I know are not necessarily the most active in the church. They are not necessarily doing the most things on the list of things. They may do some key things, and they have their own ministries in some respect, but that doesn't always come out in the form of a, of a laundry list of things. Sometimes it's just about how they spend their life in their home praying or studying or counseling Simple things, but they're eminently godly people and they make that godliness evident in all that they say and do. And they become a model just in who they are as opposed to what they do. And you can reverse that, right? We've met, I'm sure anywhere we've gone, we've met people from time to time who were very busy, but when you really got down and looked at their life on a detailed level, they weren't the most godly. They were just busy. In fact, we can be really, really busy and still be that forgetful hearer that James is talking about. We can be the one who looks at ourselves and instead of hearing God's word, we get busy. We speak to ourselves and we go off and we do things and we are constantly avoiding the truth of what he's asking us to do. Doing Christian things instead of being a Christian. James ends the first chapter with exactly that exhortation. Look at the last two verses. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure, undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So who is this one, he says, who thinks himself religious? The word religious here in the Greek is threskos, and it means someone who fears or worships God. So we're still talking about a believer here. But the point is, a believer who sees himself as someone who's doing the right things in keeping with their faith. The religious person in this context is the busy believer or the active, outwardly focused believer who's trying to show their faith in a million ways. But they're living their faith improperly in that sense. If we're thinking ourselves pretty good, you know, on balance, overall, not bad, but I'm your above average believer, right? Like Lake Wobegon, right? Everyone was above average. Right? You're the kind of person who looks upon God's word. You hear it. But most of the time you come away thinking there's not much you need to change. Or even if you think there's something worth changing, you never get around to it. And then you get busy doing and saying and, and being all these things you think you need to be. That person is someone who, according to James, thinks themselves religious. Busy religious people. But, James says to that person, here's your test. If you want to know whether you're this person, this person who hears and doesn't do, who thinks themselves religious, but you're missing the point, your religion is worthless, here's your test. Do you bridle your tongue? Can you bridle your tongue? I mean, that should be easy, right? If you can't stop your tongue from doing what it shouldn't do, what good are you? That's the easiest thing you could think of, right? So let's, let's see if we pass that test. We never lie. Uh, we never gossip. We never utter a hurtful word against anyone. We never speak out of pride. 
We never speak a word of arrogance. Is that where we are? If you cannot pass that test, even just that one, never mind how many more he could have listed, then we are deceiving ourselves if we think there is nothing in our lives that needs to change according to God's word and that we can then be busy, religiously busy, helping everyone else. In trials, we are going to fail fast rather than be blessed if we are content to rely on our own thoughts and our own religiosity instead of turning to God's word and recognizing we don't have what it takes. And then he says that religion is worthless. Hear what he's saying. He's not saying it's worthless to God. That is self-evident. He is saying it's worthless to yourself. You're not earning treasure. You're not benefiting yourself in eternal terms. You're getting nowhere with respect to what it is you think you're, you're getting if what we're doing is working out of the flesh, out of a view that we are already where we need to be. If you want a picture, he says, of what real religion should look like in the Christian walk, this is to the question of what does a, a new believer in the faith who came out of a Jewish history of doing the law, now I'm a believer in Christian terms, what does it mean now to do what it takes to be a good Christian? What are the works of Christianity? He gives an external and an internal challenge. Externally, he says, that work will take the form of ministering to those who have nothing to offer us in return. A complete, self-sacrificial kind of service. Remember, in James's day, there were two classes of people who were the most vulnerable and the least able to return any favor. Those were orphans and widows. So if you set your mind on supporting orphans and widows, ministering to them, you had gone out and taken on the least important class of people in the culture. What would that group be in our day today? You know, you could argue things like homeless, things like people in prison, things like the destitute or the invalids or the elderly. or you know, There's classes of people in our age today who kind of fill the same role in society. No way they can repay you. Nothing they can offer in response. They can't join our church. They can't add to the tithes. They become a source of blessing that is completely immaterial, only spiritual. It's a pure selfless act of love if we minister to those people. To that class, he says, when you go out serving them in ministry, then you are showing a truer form of works, of religion, of doing what you learn in God's Word. And I think of it this way. In the moment that we sit in our home in self-pity around a trial, having lost our job, having our car break down, having an illness, get up, go to an orphanage and serve them for a day, and I guarantee you, your thoughts of your own circumstance will be a lot different at the end of that day. And it's not just positive thinking nonsense. We're saying that that selfless act of love reverses the equation. It takes you out of the position of feeling like a victim who needs something and puts you in the position of a blessed person who recognizes all God has done and sees opportunity to bless somebody else. It's, a, it's an understanding of the real role you play of we, uh, that we play in ministering to others in the body of Christ. And then secondly, lastly today, the inward change. He says, that's one step, but it's not enough. On the other side of the equation is what you're doing internally. Do you keep yourself unstained by the world? Do you see yourself as a, an ambassador of Christ, as the one who's supposed to live in a Christ-like way, and as a result, you live your life differently? Being godly is not measured by the busyness of our life or by our accomplishments. It's, it's measured by the Christ-likeness of our life. Go with me in prayer. Heavenly Father,
I've preached the Word this morning, Father, as I've understood it according to Your Spirit. But I've also preached it, Father, out of a, out of a position of conviction myself. Nothing worse, Father, than to study, to prepare in teaching others, only to see yourself as not meeting the test of Scripture. Father, I pray that in all that's been said here, that that conviction has been shared. And not merely because I don't want to be the only one, but also, Father, more importantly, because I trust that you had a word for each person in the teaching and that the Scriptures, Father, speak to all of us in the same way. We have a hope, Father, of an eternal Life led with, lived with you and with our inheritance and with all the glory that you promise. But in the meantime, Father, we have a work awaiting us here, a chance to serve you, a chance to, to be your spokesperson to others. Not that we take your place, but you offer us the glorious opportunity to join you in the work. I pray, Father, we would have a heart for it. First, that we would seek to be more Christ-like in our own life. And then, secondly, Father, that we would seek opportunities as you direct to bless others with what you have given us. Thank you for a church that reminds us of that and of a fellowship in which we can be encouraged and strengthened to do it. Father, we pray that all that we would do here, all we would say, would glorify your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.